Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Ether is the perfect drug for Las Vegas. In this town, they love a drunk. Fresh meat. Come on, boy. So they put us through the turnstiles and turned us loose inside. This is your weekly dose of ether. We're your hosts. I'm Bijan. We have Lucian with us. Today on episode one, we're going to be talking about the latest in Ethereum development with the release of Truffle 5.0. We're going to talk about Web3.js and the difficulties of implementing as a developer across frameworks, uh, as well as recent developments in Dev P2P, uh, some recent dApps that we've tried, uh, as well as a discussion around protocol theory and value accretion. Is it thin protocols and fat apps? Is it fat protocols and fat money theory? We'll discuss that and more on this episode of Dose of Ether. Hey, Lucian. Hey, what's up? Uh, just enjoying my week, having a wonderful week in Southern, sunny Southern California. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Um, DC is hot and I'm ready for fall. Can't wait for the temperature to cool You're- down a little bit. Yeah, so that I could go outside. I, I don't know if you remember what seasons are like. Oh, no, um, I, I, I'm yeah. not really familiar with them. <laughs> it's, called, it's these very variations in uh, weather patterns, pretty much as dramatic as movements in crypto prices. But Yeah, that sounds terrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you're, you're going on a trip soon. When's that? Yeah, I'm uh, leaving tomorrow, and I'm going to uh, Berlin. And yeah, I'm excited. Um, Sounds super exciting. I can't wait to hear uh, everything that you learned there. So, yeah. uh, so, so this week uh, in Ethereum, uh, you know, we want to give our, our listeners just a dose of what's happening this week. So um, you're a developer on, on Ethereum and you've been doing blockchain development for over a year now. Um, Truffle is, is a big name in the framework and Web 3.0 game. So What's going on with them and, and give us the highlights? Yeah, uh, Truffle is usually the first um, developer tool that anyone building um, on Ethereum starts with. And um, I've always found it very useful for the compilation and deployment of smart contracts. Um, it has a good command line interface and some uh, concise commands that you basically run to turn your Solidity code into bytecode and then deploy it onto um, an Ethereum network. And it has basically a JavaScript interface that you uh, basically input the um, specifics of the network that you're uh, connecting to, and it manages the actual process of compilation and deployment. And, and Truffle is, they're on version 5.0, it looks like now. Um, is it a pretty mature framework for Ethereum development? And it sounded like you, you said you can develop on any blockchain. Is that true? Uh, you can't develop on any blockchain, but you can develop on any Ethereum-based blockchain. I often used it for uh, connecting to private uh, blockchain deployments that I had or private click proof of authority test nets that I'd set up. Um, and, and and what's new in version 5.0? So version 5.0 finally uh, upgraded to Web3.js1. And 
This is uh, probably one of the largest points of frustration for people learning. Um, I've helped a couple people get started in uh, front-end uh, JavaScript development using um, Ethereum, and essentially, if you go and you look up the documentation for Web3, the first page that you get is Web3.js version 1. Um, Truffle only uh, just started using Web3 version 1.0, while uh, for the last year, every time you would go to the documentation for Web3, um, it would automatically default to 1.0, um, even though a year ago it didn't have very big uh, components of functionality implemented. And so, so how would you use the latest in Web3.js uh, if you were also using Truffle? The way that I got around it was, um, actually, I've used basically different versions of Web3.js, um, depending on how long ago. A year ago, I did not use version 1.0, but uh, three months ago, I was already using a version 1.0. Um, the, uh, the syntactic difference is uh, quite dramatic, and there's breaking changes, um, everything from the way they handle events to um, how it handles asynchronous functions uh, is basically completely different. So it's kind of weird that Truffle is the main uh, developer tool people use, even though it doesn't actually explicitly say in the, um, in the documentation of Truffle which version of Web3 it used. So what I ended up doing was for most of my front-end projects, I would actually deploy the contract, and then I would take the uh, JSON um, compiled and deployed contract, and I would actually copy it into a Create React app, um, because there I could basically uh, write my own dependencies, specify explicitly which version of Web3.js I would use, and um, despite and so, all... Yeah. yeah, and so you're mixing different frameworks and trying to use as many off-the-shelf tools as you can to get the job done. Um, and is this improved now with version 5.0? So I can't promise that it's been improved because um, Truffle itself is very uh, modular. And if I were to actually do something that would combine my front-end application with um, the new release of Truffle, I would be using called uh, something called Truffle Boxes. And these basically combine the Create, create React App uh, framework with Truffle. And same thing, it doesn't actually say which version of Web3 it uses. And I personally had some problems. Um, to give you one example, they've released, uh, this. these are all consensus projects. So I really like the fact that they uh, deploy these developer tools, but at the same time, um, these are some of the issues that I've experienced. And what happened was essentially they deployed something called Drizzle, which if uh, people who've used React before are familiar with, it's a, basically a custom implementation of Redux um, for Ethereum, and I was using it Thursday and Friday, and by Monday, there was a breaking update to the versioning underlying Truffle that actually made it not work anymore. So they just had this big release for a new, um, new React uh, framework that was 
fairly um, there was a bit of time that required to pick it up and start learning how to use it. But essentially, over the weekend, they basically pushed changes that made it unusable out of the box. Wow. And, and is that common with the, the tools available to developers today in the, in the crypto space, that you get breaking changes because they're moving fast and releasing code and, and trying to, you know, uh, update the protocol and make it more usable and don't really care about backwards compatibility because maybe there's not so many users right now? That's true, yes. It's not just uh, backwards compatibility, it's just that the development, it, since it's happening in an open source ecosystem, using the cutting edge implementation, which I recommend actually for everyone, um, both for security reasons, because you don't know when updates are actually made for security improvements, um, but also for usability and uh, speed improvements, but at the same time, you have to realize that when updates are pushed, there isn't a guarantee that all of the things, especially tooling around Ethereum, are able to keep up pace with the actual changes of the Ethereum protocol itself. Mm -hmm. So you have to always kind of make sure that um, when you do kind of upgrade or when you do start using a, uh, using a new tool set, you have to make sure that what you wanted to build or is actually uh, implemented already. And this has been something that uh, with Web3.js has been an issue the past year. But um, if you basically work on the Ethereum protocol, this is something that's always going to happen. Because Ethereum's yeah, moving forward right. and everything else has to keep up with it. So, And that, that maybe that's just a new thing that we have to build into our businesses as, as a cost of, you know, blockchain development is... is constantly trying to think about how do we make this upgradable and minimize any downside risk of platform or framework changes that, that break old versions. Or you just keep your, your stuff static and it's like the Fortran problem of, you know, developers uh, or products still being used in production for assembly type code um, that can't just can't be changed. So, right. I guess, so I guess if you have a private network, if you have a private network, you can uh, do an upgrade freeze, but what if there's a hard fork and the rest of the network moves on to a different version? Um, then you reduce yeah. total security of your app and it's no longer viable, right? Exactly, or you create some breaking changes and you have to go into emergency mode basically to uh, make sure that your app functions as it used to. So it sounds like things are getting easier and better and it's still very painful, no doubt, which is why blockchain developers are in high demand. And we'll talk about Truffle University in a second. But with Drizzle, you know, you had mentioned that being a, a point of uh, contention or issue with development and, and integration. What is Augusto, if that's the right way to say it? And, and how does that compare to Drizzle? Um, Augusto is basically a uh, Drizzle competitor. Instead of using Redux, it um, uses another front-end state management process. Um, and it's nice that there's uh, a competition for uh, developer tools. And everyone seems to have their own process uh, with these. So it's just good to see that um, there's other people that are redoing the work that may have already been done by uh, someone like Consensus, but 
it's always nice when the community uh, comes forward and provides alternatives. Yeah, I mean, and you're seeing that with the sharding spec and, and just the, the number of teams working in parallel on the same problems is really exciting to see. And it, it's a, it just demonstrates that people see these problems fundamentally differently. And the solution space is so wide open that you're seeing a lot of different implementations and, and attempts at this. And um, so Truffle sounds like is, is starting a university where they're teaching a boot, they're, they're starting a boot camp, it sounds like, to teach people how to become blockchain developers. I have I don't really know what the salary expectations are for a blockchain developer. If you have a year of blockchain or Ethereum development experience, what what is like the range of salaries you can expect in Silicon Valley or or you know fintech companies? Do you know? Um, so basically, blockchain development um, has been one of the most in demand. Uh, job and skill this past year and because of the ICO boom um, there's just basically been a new flood of investment and there is no real set pathway to become a blockchain developer. Uh, being a blockchain developer in and of itself means really uh, divergent and different things. So Truffle University probably is training people to uh, become front-end React developers um, that basically understand the tooling that goes into uh, connecting um, to Web3 through JavaScript. And, um, and what, what, do like, you, what do you think is the barrier to entry for, let's say you're a brand new developer, you don't even know, you know, Web 2.0 technologies. Is this the kind of program that's going to be useful for you? Or do they expect you to be a, you know, working developer already? I probably would recommend having built a couple projects um, because blockchain just adds a increased level of complexity and difficulty to the development process um, because of the asynchronous nature and because you're essentially uh, building something on uh, moving ground. Um, you have to have a pretty good grasp of the fundamentals, um, but essentially, the requirements of a uh, Truffle University are basically just having general front-end development experience. And, gotcha. uh, yeah, that's that's kind sounds, of how sounds, I... Yeah. Oh, yeah, that, is, that is... You went through a boot camp, right? I went through a coding boot camp, yeah. And then um, during my first job, I had the opportunity to uh, work and kind of prove myself um, on some Ethereum projects. And I've slowly been developing up my skill set. So... I basically transitioned from being a front-end developer to uh, trying to be a full-stack blockchain developer. And that process is, um, it's a bit more complicated, I would yeah. say. It requires- it'll, 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 get, it'll get a lot easier, hopefully, with, uh, with Truffle University. So, um, and I think this is really relevant. Obviously, you have so many companies, like you said, with ICOs, they need developers, and particularly, not necessarily the low-level blockchain development itself, but to build applications on top. And more frameworks and layers of abstraction should come to make that easier. So that company is like the one I'm starting and the one that, that you're employed with will be able to, to get those developers that they need. I've heard ranges of like 300,000 plus for for early kind of blockchain developers, I don't I don't know if that's accurate or not, but the that's... most uh, the most outrageous kind of like salary uh, news that I heard recently was uh, million dollar signing bonus for wow. people who uh, who were developers on uh, Ripple, Jesus. and um, 
essentially it's really difficult to find anyone who has a lot of experience that is still hireable. Um, it's kind of interesting, but if someone has three years of blockchain experience, they basically experienced um, a 10x to 100x, depending on how their portfolio was structured, increase in the uh, their holdings of cryptocurrency. So, right. um, so you can't. How do you motivate guys like that, right? Uh-huh. I think they're so, self-motivated, and I've seen a lot of people who basically cashed out some of their crypto earnings and basically started a company. Um, it's hard to employ these people, um, so it's also put additional stress on the job market. But um, it'll hopefully alleviate over time. Um, so moving on to like some development and protocol level stuff that's that's changed. Um, maybe you can give us some insight on the Wireshark. Uh, and the improvements to Ethereum's dev P2P. So um, dev P2P is Ethereum's communication protocol. And um, the the way to basically think about it is how um, bits of data are actually transmitted um, to other Ethereum nodes. So how do Ethereum nodes actually communicate to each other? And... Um, You've probably heard about um, how the process of node communication and syncing works, but the actual specifics of it are actually pretty detailed. And um, Consensus developed and released a Wireshark dissector, which basically allows you to look at individual packets being sent um, from your computer or whatever computer um, you have this running on and being able to tell exactly what IP addresses your computer is talking to in um, in while running an Ethereum node. And, and this dev P2P, much like lib P2P, these are fundamental technologies that developers of DAFs use um, to build on Ethereum. I know even, you know, Filecoin just released their Q2, Q3 update, and they're making heavy use of dev P2P and are, are adding to that to that um, project. Yeah, yeah. So um, the developers of Filecoin are actually called Protocol Labs, and they released a protocol called LibP2P, and um, it has some really uh, forward-thinking implications. And I honestly haven't been able to find enough um, detailed information about what it actually does, but what it's supposed to do is it's supposed to modularize the entire communication stack to allow things like um, peer-to-peer communication over Wi-Fi or Bluetooth directly without a central server. And it's basically supposed to be a a larger generalization. Um, Parity recently uh, released a Rust implementation of libp2p and it's basically what they're going to be using for uh, their Polkadot implementation. Um, so I also heard Gavin Wood saying that libp2p is essentially a better future-proof implementation um, of, of a... Of the web, almost, right? Yeah, yeah, because, of a communication because, protocol, yeah. Yeah, because I, I, in the, my early research about Filecoin, like it was, I was amazed because they're trying to build rebuild the entire with IPFS as well, trying to build the entire internet stack, right? And right. even just recently, IPFS, that that protocol was accepted into the nightly builds for Firefox and 
into Brave. And if that's going to be treated like a first class citizen, like the HTTP is in, in the internet world, then we can start to see this purely decentralized internet start to bloom without the security holes and, and things that weren't considered in the first iteration of it. Right. Um, yeah. so that's, that's pretty amazing progress. And it's good to see, obviously, that, that everyone can leverage these technologies once they're available. So we were going to talk about rock, paper, scissors on Ethereum, Peepith. And what, what happened? I, I know I tried rock, paper, scissors. I couldn't get the MetaMask transaction to go through in time for us to record this. What happened with you and Peepith? Um, so I set up Peepith, uh, for, um, ETH Berlin and, I basically got the application set up and I've spent about uh, almost $15 on transactions on the network. Um, but despite my uh, transactions being confirmed, they don't appear to have changed the actual front end interface. So yeah, this exact thing happened to me on Augur. I kept repeating the transaction multiple times and I wasn't seeing the response and feedback in the UI. Yeah. And it's so it's such a downer because it, it just turns you off immediately. And and it's it's OK that, you know, of, of course, we're going to be working on this and the user experience is going to improve. But like you got people that are motivated that are coming to your product and they just want to use it. Um, I get that the focus is on hardening the smart contracts. But if you if you release an unusable product, it's really hard to get those users back. Right. Yeah. And and even MetaMask itself, I don't know at what at what state level of the stack the issue is, um, but or if it's just a fundamental issue with communicating over blockchains is um, you have to you have to wait or have different expectations or it has to be built into the app to, to, to guide you through that process. But it's a big problem if we can't even use the dApps that are available today. Right. Exactly. The, uh, the user interface design is still fairly uh, complicated. And this actually basically transitions perfectly into our next discussion. The fact that um, a lot of the user interface challenges that uh, DAP developers have run into, they've come to realize that the definitive way to actually handle these use cases is by uh, having a hardware wallet or an external key storage device. Um, so I've recently seen updates from uh, decentralized applications that have nothing to do with hardware, like uh, Status or Grid Plus, um, releasing their own implementations of uh, hardware devices that um, make interacting with the blockchain safer and more user friendly. So for example, status has NFC tokens that you tap on, uh, the near field communication reader on your smartphone to sign transactions. So it's like wow. basically bringing your wallet up to your smartphone, uh, to sign transactions. Wow. Um, so that, is that a, is that a card that you yeah. keep in your wallet and then you can use the NFC chip that's in your yeah. phone? to yes. sign the transaction. And yep. and is that on a deep enough layer in the in the OS that it can be safe? Well, it's already being used by technologies like Apple Pay um, or any of the Android implementations. Um, so yeah, in a sense, it is fairly secure. Um, but it's basically a way to provide uh, feedback to your phone that you do, in fact, own the private keys. Um, Doing this with software only is actually much more difficult. 
and there's no really good way. And this is why I think a lot of DAP developers are just relying more on um, hardware devices, external hardware devices. Yeah, and, and the, what security. I'm seeing is really interesting. It looks like the hardware device is, is taking that, two, that second factor of the 2FA that we're familiar with in Web 2.0, where you'd set up your phone, your phone you know, number and um, and that would give you access in addition to your password. Now on the on Web 2.0, you're actually seeing a movement away from passwords altogether into passwordless authentication with Google login and things like that. So 2FA is the standard along with passwordless authentication, which is super seamless now. People understand. Um, well, 2FA could be better. And now with with hardware wallets, you're seeing that as well. Where if you want to have an implementation that's purely software. Um, you could abstract the private key into a password, but now if you lose the password, you lose all your money and store it in there. And protecting users from this is really hard if you don't have that second factor. Email is obviously not enough, um, and so if you could use your phone, and it's brilliant use of technology to think of NFC there, now you won't be able to uh, sign transactions if you only have the phone, or you only have the wallet. You would need both right. and you need access to the insides of the phone, presumably to make it work, um, yeah. which is which is a great solution and one that sounds actually pretty familiar to users. The question that I would have is, how do you actually get adoption of that? How do you get your first dollar in that in that uh, heart NFC chip card? Is it by buying it as a, let's say a $50 gift card at the grocery store and now you have $50 in Bitcoin on your, you know, your status hardware NFC card? Is that how that would work? Mm -hmm. I have seen actual gift cards uh, for Ethereum, at least. Um, I think they're simply called ETH cards. And uh, they come in the mail and you basically like scratch off um, a QR code that makes you actually like have the private keys on a physical device. Um, so and you could load up those cards and basically yes. anyone anyone who scratches off the uh, the private keys can then access the funds that were sent to that wallet. Right, which is not not a great not a great outcome. So, um, but another variation of this that I think is actually the the right way to go in this early stage when usability of private keys and understanding behind it and custodianship and all that is is lacking, is what Plasma Chain and and what they're doing with at the Loom network. Um, they've got a game that doesn't require any gas fees to participate, and that is incredible. And I think that shows the power of decentralized systems. Um, I do understand that it's working on maybe a, a delegated proof of stake, but Plasma Chain and, and, and Loom Network is really cool because you can um, implement any kind of consensus algorithm onto the Ethereum blockchain with the same guarantees as Ethereum, but with the feature set that you're looking for in that consensus algorithm. So you could, I think, it, you know, Vitalik once said you could run um, all of EOS as a side chain or, or on Loom network. Maybe it was Loom that actually Loom had an article about running EOS on top of Ethereum. Um, so so what, uh, what can you say about the developments there and how they relate to the user experience with Ethereum? Yeah, so um, the fact that there's actually an implementation of a plasma chain that is currently in production, first of all, is um, is really surprising. I'm shocked that the Loom network has actually been able to develop so fast. They were actually one of the first people to develop a, uh, a state channel implementation 
Um, so if you've ever used delegate call, have you, have you used delegate call? No. It's supposed to be like a stack overflow, um, which you, which is where programmers go and ask, uh, mm -hmm. development related questions. But, um, if you get points from other users on this application, then, uh, what happens is you actually get exchangeable ERC20 tokens. So um, it's as if uh, the karma you would get from Reddit uh, can be traded on the Ethereum mainnet network. It's um, really interesting, and they actually built a side chain for this. Um, wow. A plasma chain is actually more difficult, and this might actually be the first example of it actually put into production that I've heard of. Um, the interesting thing about the plasma chain is that now the delegated call social chain, as they call it, branches off of the plasma chain. So the um, the application that used to be rooted on the Ethereum mainnet is now rooted on the plasma chain. And the way they've designed their ecosystem makes it so that, um, as you were saying, when you play their game, you don't actually directly have to interact with Ethereum to make it usable, but you still have the ability or the guarantees, for example, to cash out your playing cards and to trade them peer to peer and to own your um, your items as um, non fungible tokens, and you can still use the guarantees provided by uh, mainnet Ethereum, but at the same time, it might just be like the solution for how to uh, simplify onboarding. Right, and and it sounds like the way that it works is that you're um, you're trusting in a way you're trusting the centralized provider to run a node that runs this software as a side chain or a state channel or what have you, and this node runs kind of like a centralized server, but with no knowledge or or control over the funds within it. They're supposed to process the transactions, and they have some kind of deposit with the Ethereum main chain to uh, guarantee that if they don't, if they censor transactions, they can be penalized for that, for that effort. Um, but the users, all of their transactions are locked away and secured in, a, in um, um, you know, the way that they are, and you can explain, um, to be able to settle with the Ethereum blockchain. Is that kind of an overview of how, how Loom works? Um, kind of, yeah. So the plasma chain, plasma chains in general, um, it's an implementation of plasma cash, which is a simplified version of the grander vision of a, a full plasma chain. Um, so it doesn't have the full functionality of an Ethereum blockchain, but what it permits is it has a smart contract on the Ethereum mainnet, which allows for users to prove ownership. So they could submit a cryptographic proof, which is essentially a chain of signatures that represent custody and shows that you are the last owner of an item or in-game currency. And um, then you basically can put that transaction onto the Ethereum mainnet and um, it's open for a period of time. So people can contest and say, oh, you withheld some uh, transactions, the true owner is the person you sold it to. And what ends up happening is that um, in the end, you have uh, a single concise uh, transaction at the end 
that's only submitted when you actually want to leave. Um, so if all of the uh, rules of the game are essentially pre-programmed into it, you have this nice um, guarantee of how the in-game um, mechanisms work. Right. So and that allows you to actually create value for these NFTs or these these collectible digital tokens because people can trust that they can't be copied or um, right. or, or the rules of the game, like such as the, the evolution and genetics of CryptoKitties, that they can't be changed even by the centralized operators. I mean, it, this applies to to all sorts of businesses. Right. Like, how do you know that eBay isn't gaming their auction system? and injecting fake bids like you have no way of verifying that and and this allows us to do that without without hamstringing the entire ethereum network and skyrocketing gas fees and having latency that's just insane for a user experience that makes sense um and to do it in a way that is currently production ready for a popular game i think it's the top five game zombie chain is on uh on, on DAP radar, but, but I might be wrong on that. Um, so that's, that's an amazing set of developments, it sounds like, for this, this week that we've learned about. Um, there's also like a really big topic that we should talk briefly about and maybe get into in another show, um, is the, the topic around value accretion and how does a, a token like Bitcoin, Ethereum, or any of the thousand other tokens, how do they actually accrue value over time? And the debate has changed a lot. And you can see the, the ratio of price between Bitcoin and Ethereum kind of follow the narrative about which is stronger. When we were in 2016, or sorry, 2017, we had the, the flippening was the biggest topic in the summer of 2017, is when is Ethereum going to outsize Bitcoin and market cap? And I remember watching Ether's price ratio hit like 0.12, 12% of the value of a Bitcoin, and now it's at 0.04, 4% of the value of a single Bitcoin um, is, is one Ether. And that's an amazing shift, um, and that shift has happened. It's bounced around in that range for more than a year now. Um, and the narrative right now is that, especially with Sa- Saif Adin Amus and, and others who are p- promoting the Bitcoin maximalist kind of ideal of uh, monetary of sound money that Bitcoin represents, they're saying that Ethereum and, and all the others are going to go to zero as value. And that, that is called the, the fat protocol thesis or fat money thesis, that all of the value will accrue to Bitcoin. And it does make sense in a, in, in, in a way that what is the point of holding Ethereum if people are using Bitcoin as a store of value? If you don't want to be exposed to the volatility of Ethereum, you may be more likely to hold your money in a stable coin. There's a lot of reasons to take your money out of Ethereum, not least of which is that it's inflating at an incredible rate, right? So theoretically, the only people that would be hold, that would be using Ethereum would be those who have you know big, huge, you know, distributed applications. They need it as like cash flow to process tr- transactions and spend gas. The other people will be stakers. They'll be trying to make a return on investment from the inflation and the, the monetary supply of, of Ether. Uh, unfortunately, if that vol- velocity of usage exceeds the um, proportion of users that are staking their tokens to get that return um, in the block reward um, or the, the mining or, or um, staking reward, then you're going to have a big issue with the price. The price is going to drop 
substantially. Some people are, are putting um, Ether as 100 times overvalued, even at its current level. Um, I think that was uh, John Pfeffer, or, or uh, getting his name right, mentioned that even close to a year ago. Now people are saying, you know, $100 Ether is, is reasonable. Um, it's hard to say. It's, it's not very clear, but that's what the narrative looks like right now. Um, and where it's going, interestingly, there's an amazing article about the different narratives in the crypto space today and um, a new kind of controversial and uh, emerging idea is the thin protocol and fat um, app thesis. And this says that, you know, decentralized protocols are, are kind of like commodities. You, you could have a fork of Ethereum that is just as useful as Ethereum if it had enough stakers and miners, right? And, and you could think of the, the smart contracts that are being built on Ethereum. You could fork those, copy those. It's all open source code. What's stopping people? The thin protocol idea is that there's going to be many versions of Augur, you know, many versions of CryptoKitties or, or Zombie, whatever. And, there, and there, there's going to be so many of them that um, any adapt developer can pick and choose however they like. And if it's modular enough, they can switch platforms very easily. So if you're building a decentralized marketplace, use their, their token, um, there may be another version of Origin that works just as well or even better, and developers might switch to that. The, the FAT app thesis says that the, the companies that own the customer and, and have that relationship with them are going to be the ones that are able to capture value in the DAP ecosystem, because if you own the customer now, if you charge a 1% fee, are they really likely to change if they're familiar with your application, they trust you, they, they think it's working well? Um, is a 1% fee going to really push them away when they're used to 20 or 30% on traditional Web 2.0 um, services? I, I don't know. So it's a really interesting debate, and it's, it's hard to see where it goes. Um, but but I'm super fascinated, particularly because I'm building a product in the space. Um, I need to know this stuff pretty well. Yeah, so I agree that um, it's hard to predict the future, um, and price predictions are um, completely beyond a, any person or any algorithm's ability to predict. Um, really unless you have volume that's sufficient to actually move markets for immediate short term so that you could uh, create a pump and dump or a game uh, or a game, um, a specific trading platform, um, then I don't think you can really know what the price direction is going to be. Um, the, the idea that um, fat protocols actually argue against uh, Ethereum or the FAT protocol thesis would argue against Ethereum. Um, I just want to point out the fact that Union Square Ventures uh, was the one who actually published uh, the FAT protocol thesis, but they're also the ones who recently invested, I think, something like $13 million, or at least they led the round into CryptoKitties. And um, despite the fact that uh, the FAT protocol thesis says that the actual value of um, the token ecosystem is going to uh, greatly outweigh the sum total of decentralized applications is, um, I think, a sign of speculation. And I don't really buy the store of value argument 
Um, just like I don't buy the single coin to rule them all simply because the technology currently um, isn't at the point in which all transactions can be funneled through one Bitcoin. So I, I'm more of a... Um, I'm, I'm more of the uh, type of person who believes in like a wide range of applications. Um, but I'm also the type of person that um, is kind of really skeptical about a lot of the blockchain use cases that has been presented thus far. So I actually think that like the killer application for uh, blockchain still hasn't been uh, fully explored. And if Bitcoin is willing to hang their hat on uh, international monetary transactions as uh, their sole bread and butter, then I think this leaves a lot of room for applications like Ethereum um, to be a global state machine. Um, and in the end, I think the uh, diversity and the range of ideas um, actually create a feedback effect and improvements and innovations in one field will actually further uh, the development. So even if some of the smaller protocols that uh, got ramped up during the ICO boom end up uh, losing traction or not getting enough developer support to, uh, to become maintained over the long term, What's going to happen is that the, the knowledge that's been given to the open source community is actually going to uh, feed the ecosystem and eventually new, uh, new and potentially even more lucrative use cases will be developed. I honestly think that the FAT protocol thesis is um, more of a sign that right now the value of cryptocurrencies is more based on speculation than utility. And as our experience this week with using some of uh, the basic uh, Ethereum apps that are uh, generally recommended shows, um, things don't work as intended yet. And um, it's slowly going to change. Yeah, and, and, and I, 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 I agree with most of what you said. I'd love to get into a debate on this uh, in our next show because I, I, I think I think differently than you on, on a couple of these points. Um, but I will agree that we just don't know, and it's mostly speculation now. Even if you do think that um, in the, the FAT protocol thesis and that Bitcoin will be the only thing to accrue value in the long term, it still has to happen in the long term. These price swings are not relative to the actual fundamentals of whether the FAT money or thin, or, or thin money protocol or, or thesis is, is true or not. And these ideas will take you know, potentially decades to form the um, in the stock market, the uh, PV equals MQ and, and other formulas like discounted cash flows. These are Nobel Prize winning formula for valuing companies. Bitcoin is, is, is not even 10 years old yet. So to say that we figured it out, I think, is a little bit naive, actually very naive. And to think that that there's it's there's no possibility one way or the other, I think, is um uh, is a little bit reckless. Like we should be trying to encourage more usage and more experimentation, not trying to scare people out of building things because we don't know. And and that is true that we don't know, but that doesn't that shouldn't um, push us away from it. It should push us towards it as an opportunity to do things that have never been done before. I mean, if you even look at like Austrian economics, there was never a conception of money that didn't start as a commodity. Um, and in this case. Bitcoin was built as a payment infrastructure out of the gate, 
um, and it started to accrue value really before it was used um, for anything meaningful in the real world, um, which is strange, but it, but it worked, right? So I'd love to talk more about this. Um, we're running out of time. I, uh, thanks. This was, this was a great show. I hope our listeners enjoyed it. I'm excited to do it next week. Yep. Nice talking to you. All right. Well, uh, we'll talk soon. All right. See you next week. Thanks, everyone. This was your weekly dose of Ether. Thanks for joining us. We'd like to thank our publishers, the Bitcoin Podcast Network, for hosting our, our channel. If you'd like to find us on Twitter for the latest updates, we are at Dose of Ether. We'd also love for you to review us on iTunes. It helps us get support uh, to grow this channel. So thank you very much. See you next week for episode two.